Okay, well, if you have a Bible, turn it into Luke chapter 4. We're going to continue our journey through the Gospel of Luke. But to kind of set the scene for today, let me turn there as well. I want to remind you about a, something that happened earlier in Jesus' story. So when Jesus was only eight days old, a young, frazzled, sleep-deprived Mary and Joseph took their baby boy to the temple to dedicate him to the Lord. And as they entered the outer courtyard, they were met by a spirit-filled senior citizen named Simeon. And he took their infant in his arms and he started praising God. And with tears in his eyes, he rejoiced. He said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And then the old man turned to Mary and he locked eyes with her. And he said something that she would never forget. Something that she would later recount to Luke so that he could record it in his gospel. Simeon says, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also. So that thoughts from many hearts might be revealed. There is much in Luke's gospel that I find surprising and perplexing and hauntingly beautiful. And this scene with the grizzled saint is, is one such moment. With supernatural insight, he says much in just a few short sentences. He identifies Jesus as the one we've been waiting for. He's the agent of God's salvation, the one who will liberate humanity from internal and external evil, the one who will bring renewal to the cosmos. He's also the light in the darkness, the one through whom the pagan nations will see God clearly. The sun will dawn upon them and it will be warm and it will be bright, and it will be life-giving. And through him, the shattered nation of Israel will experience glory, the glory for which they were chosen and formed. Yet it's not all lollipops and rainbows. For Simeon, Jesus is a provocative figure, and his coming will be will cause tumult and change and overturning of the way things are. And he says, this is a figure by whom everyone will be confronted. He's a gate that one will either enter through or smash against. He's either a stumbling block or a cornerstone, a sign to be opposed or a Lord to be embraced. And he says, a sword will pierce your own soul also. What's in your heart will be revealed. You, that's you listening to my voice. You will have to decide how you will respond to him because Jesus is anything but neutral. 
apathy and ambivalence are impossible when it comes to him. So as we pick up the narrative in Luke this morning, it's been about 30 years since that scene with Simeon in the temple. And after three decades of anonymity, Jesus is ready for his public career. His time has come. He has his mission. He's chosen to accept it. And this is what we read starting in verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. We've heard in Luke's gospel that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. We've witnessed the Spirit descend upon him tangibly at his baptism. We've watched the Spirit lead him into the wilderness for this period of preparation and testing where he was tempted by the devil. And now God's mighty Spirit empowers him for what is to come, for the tasks that lie ahead. And the journey begins in Jesus' home region of Galilee. So although he was born in Bethlehem, although he spent a few years living as a refugee in Egypt, he grew to maturity in what is basically a, it's not even a village, it's a hamlet, a small hamlet known as Nazareth. It's this isolated cluster of 50 homes built along a rocky limestone ridge. And it's in the north of Israel's kind of ancestral homeland. And it's this proud but largely insignificant community that's established by Jewish exiles as they're returning from Babylon. And you see, the Jews, they were determined to claw back a portion of their lost inheritance that had long been dominated by foreigners. First, it was Assyrians and Babylonians, but more recently, Greeks and Romans. And though they're now far from Judea, Nazareth was settled by a clan from the tribe of Judah, a family group that claimed direct descent from the great Israelite king, David. And so you have these humble subsistence farmers, and they give their messianic, or their settlement, this messianic name. Nazareth is Little Netzer. In uh, Hebrew, it's Little Netzer means the little branch or the little offshoot. And it's this allusion to Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 4. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots, a netzer from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And it goes on, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. So there is some brashness to naming your podunk little village Nazareth. It's the same sort of defiant bravado behind Athens, Ohio, or Paris, Texas, or um, Rome, Alabama. 
it is this kind of statement in defiance, it seems, of, of reality. Any educated scribe could tell you that Israel's Messiah would hail from Bethlehem. But these unsophisticated kind of country folk insist in blind faith that God's anointed would emerge from their midst. His origins would be humble and hard scrabble like them. And shockingly, they were right. So let's continue with our story. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. In Jesus' day, synagogue generally refers not to a building, but to a gathering of people. And while a more wealthy settlement like Capernaum down the shore on the Lake Gennesaret on the Sea of Galilee, they might have a special structure where the local assembly of God's people might gather. Uh, The synagogue in Nazareth likely met in the large room of a private home. And we hear that as it was his custom, Jesus attends Sabbath services, Shabbat services. He's the ever faithful and devout Jew. And it also sounds like it was common for Jesus to read and expound upon the scriptures as well. Because remember, though it varied from place to place in the ancient world, on average, uh, it's like one in 10, about 10% of the population uh, had any ability to read or write. And Jesus, he's literate, and it's apparent that Joseph has trained him in the Torah as a father ought. Though Jesus' faculty with God's word was incredible, even from an early age. Luke records that even when he was a boy, he astounded the scholars of Jerusalem with his questions and with his insights. And a community like Nazareth probably doesn't have a rabbi in residence. And it appears that Jesus, the builder's son, may have played that role for his neighbors when he wasn't working in wood and stone and metal as a, as a builder, as a carpenter. And indeed, many in the Gospels will go on to call him rabbi. So, if you've never been to a Shabbat, Shabbat service, typical service, it begins with the recitation of the Shema. That's Deuteronomy 6 four through five. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And this would be followed with a series of prayers and readings from the law and the prophets. And after standing up to read God's word, the rabbi would then sit and expound upon it. He would teach and he would apply God's instruction for his community. And while the readings are typically on this set rotation, you'd have the synagogue attendant hand the rabbi the scroll of the book that they're supposed to be reading from that Saturday. But the teacher was free to kind of select their passage within that designated scroll. 
So here Jesus, Nazareth's humble stonemason and carpenter, he's, he's been away from a, a while. He's returned home. He's probably lean from 40 days of fasting. He's probably tan. A power seems to be resting upon him. And there's this hard to explain excitement and anticipation associated with this Sabbath service. Something seems to be afoot. And Jesus, he selects as his text what we would call Isaiah 61. But they don't have verse and chapter markings at this point. And he stands up to read from the prophet. And this is what he says. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And all, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And they all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? Jesus gets one sentence into his sermon and the place erupts. And honestly, I, I think I've been reading this passage wrong for a long time. I've always assumed that they were erupting in offense. Who does this guy think he is? How dare he declare himself to be someone special? He grew up here. We remember when he was a snot-nosed kid. And really, God's Messiah is going to be a, a, a builder, a carpenter? This is the dude that helped me fix my foundation last summer. Does that really make him savior of Israel, material? That's what I'm assuming is their reaction. I've also wondered if they were upset with Jesus' reading of Isaiah. He's reading a text about the end of Israel's exile in Babylon. But apparently he live edits it in a way that makes it this potent, living, applicable word for this moment. And while it could be that Luke is just kind of using a shorthand, quoting the beginning of the reading to reflect the entirety of the passage, based on what comes next, it does seem that Jesus' omissions are intentional and strategic. Let me read you the full proclamation from the prophet Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed, because the Lord has anointed me, to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks, 
of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. But you shall be called priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory shall you boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. Jesus stops before the pronouncement of God's day of vengeance, before they are declared oaks of righteousness, before any mention of feasting on the wealth of their pagan neighbors or of foreigners doing hard labor in their fields. And I kind of imagine myself being a guy in the back that says, read the whole text. But Jesus teaches as one with authority, not as your typical scribe. He handles God's word with deafness and care and insight, but also as the voice of inspiration behind the prophet in the first place. But the Nazarenes seem to not have any struggle with Jesus' statement or his teaching style. He says, today these scriptures are fulfilled in your hearing, and all these blue-collar guys essentially shout out like, let's go! They're excited. This is Nazareth, after all. These are the guys who insisted that the Messiah would emerge from among them, from their hard scrabble life. And it says, all began to speak well of him. Maybe there was a little chant, he's the branch, he's the branch. I don't know why they're very bro in my head, Nazarenes, but they, you know. But remember, they've known Jesus for years, and he's never wronged anyone. He's never done anything unethical or half-hearted. He was sinless. I'm sure he did his work with excellence, that he pointed to God at every turn, that he was helper to those in need, friend to the lowly, and they marvel at his gracious words. I think that's talking about the content of his words, not necessarily the way he said them. His message was grace. He announces reversal and restoration. He's declaring liberty and repair, the revelation of salvation and the experience of divine favor. And maybe we shouldn't be reading, isn't that Joseph's son? That way. Maybe we should be reading it, and isn't that Joseph's son? Right? These are guys that say, yeah, Joseph, the Nazarene from Bethlehem. That's like double confirmation, and he's a royal heir. And isn't it cool that he's a builder? The one who helped us build foundations will build the foundation of our nation. The one who helped us put up these strong walls will rebuild our crumbling defenses. Maybe this is something that is right in their expectation. This is exactly what they were hoping and praying for. 
Yet the mild-mannered and kindly Jesus is also Simeon's provocative figure, the one who will cause the fall and the rising of many in Israel, the one who will reveal the contents of our hearts. And in what I can't understand, Jesus goes on to make it awkward. We read this in verse 23. And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you do at Capernaum, do here as well in your hometown. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Jesus doesn't leave well enough alone. He's received this overwhelmingly positive response from his friends and neighbors. He should have rested on his laurels and and called it a day. Leave him wanting more. Yeah, guys, let's sit with this. These are exciting days. Prepare yourself for action and and come back next Saturday, next Sabbath, and we'll, we'll get down to brass tacks. We'll really unpack how God's salvation will unfold and what your role is in it. He doesn't do that. And there's no politician in Jesus either. This was an easy opportunity to flatter his hometown. You were the guys who got it. From the very beginning, you knew it in here. All of those elitists in Jerusalem with their fancy learning, those down south who make fun of our accents, they call us ignorant, they call us hard-headed, they call us simple. They never realize that God gets us. He's on our side. We're the poor and the downtrodden, enveloped and oppressed by dark forces in the surrounding culture. Of course God would begin his mighty work here. We've worked hard. We've waited patiently. And we are certainly deserving of some divine attention, aren't we? Jesus doesn't say that either. Jesus understands, though, how these men think, how they're processing the moment, what they're hoping and praying happens next. And he probably doesn't even need supernatural insight for that because he spent nearly 30 years of his life living and working and praying and crying and celebrating with these people. He's been seeking God with them. And they get it, but they don't quite get it and he's their teacher he's been charged with instructing them in the way and the heart of God so he gently bursts their balloon he gently pokes them in the eye he pushes back and he makes it awkward And it's really this interesting parallel with last week. In the wilderness, Jesus was tempted by the devil's expectations of what it meant for him to be the beloved son of God. And here in Nazareth, he's tempted by his community's expectations about what it means for him to be God's anointed deliverer. And in both situations, he responds to those temptations by recalling Scripture. Verse 25. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, 
when the heavens were shut up for three and a half, three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath. That's enemy territory in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. What is Jesus saying? Full disclosure, I'm not exactly sure. He seems to be implying that there are poorer folks out there to whom he's been sent. Folks totally lost in the darkness who don't even understand the concept of light. Folks beyond the bounds of our community that are held captive by forces of evil and sin and death. And it's as if Jesus is saying, I came for those, folk, those folks too. I am the light of revelation for the Gentiles, not just the light for glory to Israel. His heart for those on the margins extends beyond even our national borders, even beyond the bounds of our community. But also Jesus is revealing, I think, what is hidden in the human heart. And too often we approach God as consumers, as those who demand product. Lord, I go to church, I pray, I trust and follow you because I know it will be to my benefit. You will grant me the desires of my heart, a happy family life, a fulfilling job, victory over my embarrassing vices. I trust you to introduce me to my soulmate, to to cultivate for me a passionate and healthy romantic relationship. I expect that when I come into your house, I will find an exciting and a stimulating church experience. Activities and character development for my kids and and a vibrant community that adds value to my everyday existence. I anticipate that whatever God does, it will redound to my good because I am hashtag blessed. Right? That is kind of our our mentality. We don't say that, but we too often think of approaching God as a consumer. And there's a part of me that just wishes Jesus gave the people what they wanted. Right? I grew up hearing the mantra of, you know, happy wife, happy life, happy spouse, happy house. But Jesus isn't here to make us happy happy. He's here to make us holy. He's here to make us whole, to make us new. And he doesn't promise that we'll be comfortable, but he does promise to usher in everlasting comfort. And he isn't here to elevate Nazareth over Bethlehem or Israel over Rome, but to overturn a corrupt and a sin-sick status quo to rescue people who are held in bondage to evil and to make all things good and true and beautiful and right once again. His ways are not our ways. His plans are not our plans. And he has not come to labor for our glory, 
but to manifest his glory and power in us and through us. It will be for our ultimate good. His words are gracious after all, but he does not conform to our expectations. And when Jesus' hometown realizes that they will not have an inside track to favor or special access to power, they get angry and things turn ugly in an instant. When they heard all these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. I was trying to think of a parallel to this. Imagine if a hometown kid, a Washington native, makes it big in professional sports. He earns the million-dollar contract. He's awarded the lucrative shoe deal. He wins MVP. He secures for himself a championship ring, and then he returns home triumphant. And imagine if at the parade that the city throws for him, he announces that he is launching this major charitable initiative where he will give millions of his own dollars and much of his own time off the court, off the field to help at-risk and impoverished school children in San Francisco or Vancouver, Canada or Mexico City, Mexico. Would the people politely clap or, or would they riot, taking offense, feeling betrayed? A we-first mentality, which assumes that our, there's a possessiveness there, our Savior must serve us and our needs first, seems to short-circuit our experience of God's activity. Jesus will go on to do no mighty work in Nazareth. And I think such a, a self-focus, a focus on ourselves, blinds us to what God is doing for the world. I love how one scholar put it, those who stand up for their rights and insist on preferential treatment are not likely to appreciate one who offers the chance to spend and be spent in the service of others, in a gospel which leaves no room for privilege. They're looking for in his honor to find honor. They don't realize that his glory is going to come on a cross. And honestly, I struggle with this story. Provocative Jesus makes me uncomfortable. I was so tempted to stop at, and today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Because I like that message. But I struggle with a Jesus who exposes our misunderstanding and refuses to dance to our tune. How will we respond to a Savior like this? How will you respond to a Savior like this? For a sword will pierce your soul also, Simeon would say. 
If you don't know, I was a history major before God messed with my plans. It was my intent to teach history at the university level. And so I have a lot of random knowledge stuck in my head, left over from degrees that are no longer necessary. But there is this famous line that came out of the French Revolution. It's a quote attributed to a revolutionary named Alexander Auguste Ledru Rollin. I don't know how to speak French, so the accent is bad. But he says something I find deeply amusing. He says, there go the people. I must follow them, for I am their leader. (laughs) Jesus says something entirely different. Jesus doesn't say, there go the people. I must follow them, for I am their leader. In love, he beckons us. And he says, you do not know the way to life. Change directions and follow me. And I want to tell you with certainty, Jesus is the one you've been waiting for. In him is reversal and restoration, liberation and repair, the revelation of salvation and our experience of divine favor. But it is all about him, not about you. And are you okay with a Savior that will not feed your every desire? Who will not cater to your every preference? Who will not service your biases or confirm your preconceived convictions? He will not make you comfortable, but he will comfort you. He's not here to earn your vote, but he is here to rescue and save you. Can you accept a Savior like this? Oftentimes, we see that people follow God until things do not go according to their plan. Say, God, I've been praying for a wonderful and healthy family life. And I have a rebellious and difficult child. And I was here because A plus B led to C, and you promised that. And now that that is not here, I'm out. We come looking and demanding product and not realize that maybe Jesus has sent us into hard seasons. Maybe his work is not about us enjoying Thanksgiving dinner, but seeing lasting transformation, change, healing, liberation for our kid. And he has called us into a difficult season of being spent in long-suffering love so that we might experience his power and his glory at work in us and through us. But if we have our demands of what this looks like, we cut ourselves off from experiencing God's power And the other thing that's interesting about this is often we just want what we want and we don't realize what we need, right? I think of someone who gets a cancer diagnosis Right? And we think, you know what? I want, you know, to enjoy what I'm eating. I want, you know, all this stuff. I want the life I want. 
And that's kind of what we demand from the Lord. And God says, you know what? You've got something in your life that will kill you. And I want that removed. Will you trust me and follow me, even if my salvation doesn't look like what you're hoping for? Because I know better than you. You're on a road that leads to destruction. And I'm here to rescue and save. And I don't know why Jesus makes it weird with his hometown. But it seems that he is unwilling to leave them in their misunderstanding. He's unwilling to even keep his reputation maintained in their eyes because he is doing something more important. He's not just making Nazareth the top village in northern Israel or something like that. He is making the world new. He has been appointed for the fall and the rising of many. He is the gate that we will either enter through and smash up against. And at the very beginning, he asks us, what are you going to do with me even if what I'm doing is not what you expect? Nazareth said, nope, we're out. <laughs> Sorry, we're not looking for that type of savior. May we not say the same. And as we look at Jesus and learn from him in the gospel of Luke, may we have ears to hear, receptive hearts, Because honestly, what you think you need is not exactly what you need. What you need is not a marginally better existence. You need Jesus to make you holy and utterly new. Amen? Well, let's pray. Oh, God, <laughs> we come before you. And uh, we ask you to teach us. We acknowledge that you do not conform to our expectations. But Lord, you are the one we are waiting for. God, what incredible grace, what incredible news you speak. The overturning of unjust systems, freedom from oppression, rescue from bondage, good news for those who are poor. We love you. We praise you. May we not push you off the cliff, <laughs> but follow you, trusting that you will teach us and that you will save us and that you will equip us to be your agents of life to others. In Jesus' name, amen.